everyone and welcome to the Teacher Takeaway podcast. This is season two, episode 36. And for this episode, we are looking at connecting with the USA. We have a very special guest on this episode. Joining me, I'll tell you a little bit more about this person in just a moment, but this particular guest is going to discuss with us what we can learn from the education systems of another country. Really juicy topic and I cannot wait to get into it. I am flying solo for this episode. Um, my co-host James, Aaron and Beck could not join me. So I am leading this discussion or this episode with the wonderful John Shambari. Welcome, John. Thank you for having me, Alice. I also look forward to having this conversation. Now, I did say your last name correct tonight. You did. You did. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, so I'm impressed. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, did, I did have a friend that had a similar last name, so I was hoping that they were yeah. very, very similar. <laughs> I mean, in actuality, we're all pronouncing it wrong because I think in Italy it's Scambati, but 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 Chimbari yes. works fine for me. Yeah, yeah, of course. The CH is a K in, in Italy, of course. <laughs> yeah. So I don't want my Italian cousins out there getting upset saying that when I said, yes, you're pronouncing it correctly. But, uh, <laughs> but in our case, we are. Yeah, perfect. Well, you've got a very impressive resume, John. You support teachers and school leaders as an improvement coach. You're, in particular, you assist educators in implementing evidence-based instructional strategies that improve teaching practices and increase student learning. Your areas of specific interest include the facilitation of professional learning communities and educator affinity networks, implementation of project-based learning and the development of teaching practices that promote student engagement, equity and inclusion. You've served as a cater to education and education consultant, and you've worked in various roles such as teacher, school and district administrator, and as a national director for leadership development with a US-based network of schools. Wow, that's impressive. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, but many of us in, in education have a similar track uh, where, you know, you start as a teacher and then... Uh, some of us stay in the classroom and then others of us do take that, uh, that, or do, uh, you know, do that dance with, with administration. So, and then we do see now also a lot of people, I don't know if it's the same in Australia, uh, but a lot of educators now also serving in consulting roles or serving with support organizations. So, uh, so thank you for that. But uh, the path that I am working on or, or on is, is one that I think, uh, increasingly, we see many educators on. So, but thank you. No, I'm I'm interested to hear a little bit more about your journey. How did you get to where you are now? Yeah. So, uh, as I was saying, I like many folks, uh, I started as a teacher uh, in the field of education. But even prior to being an official teacher, uh, I started, you know, really thinking that my career was going to be in government service. So. I got a master's in international relations, and I was really thinking that I was going to go in, um, in that direction. But then a little after I finished my master's in international relations, a friend of mine in my graduate program had taught English in Japan. And I always found that very intriguing. And I ended up doing the same program that she had done. 
And when I came back from that experience, I realized that I wanted to make a shift and that I really did want to go into teaching as a career. And so luckily my home state in the United States where I live is New Jersey and there was an alternate route program. So I didn't have to actually go back to school to become an educator. I just needed to get my credentials evaluated to see what other additional education courses I needed to take, which was which much easier than if I had to say, go back and mm. get a whole nother bachelor's degree after getting a master's degree, became a teacher. And then Alice, I, I had some unique opportunities where as I was coming up as an educator, as a teacher, uh, the concept of magnet schools really started taking off here in the United States where there's still public schools and you still teach all the different subject areas in that school, but there's usually a theme associated with that school or you know, like a magnet attracting students to that school. So okay. I had the opportunity to teach at that time, social studies uh, and law to students in a law and magnet uh, or a law and public safety magnet high school. And I found that I really liked uh, not only just teaching the social studies and the humanities, which is my content background, but I really enjoyed the programmatic aspect of it. And so people, mentors were telling me, well, you know, if you like mentorship and I mean, programming and, and uh, developing a program, you should go and get your educational administrator license. And so did that. And then that's what got me on the the admin track, if you will, where I ended up being a, a principal in my own magnet school, and then in later a director of, of curriculum in a K-12 school system. And, you know, enjoyed that work very much. At the same time, I found that, you know, as you could probably attest, it might be similar in Australia, maybe not, that sometimes, you know, the politics can really constrain you as to what you can do on behalf of children and you know how you can really ensure that you're providing students with the best education that you can. And so that's what got me then moving more into a consulting role where now I could take this experience or these experiences that I've had uh, both in the classroom and then on the school level and, and help other teachers and other leaders to ensure that uh, that they're developing their instructional programs to be in the best interest of the students that they teach. Mm, fascinating. It, it's such a diversity and I love that, you know, teaching because wasn't, I guess, the first thing that you came to, but it was something that you kind of came to, I guess, by chance through, you know, the experiences that you had early on in your career. Um, and I know way back at the beginning of, of our first season of the podcast, you know, Beck and James and Aaron and I, we all talked about how teaching was not like the first thing that we kind of felt like we wanted to do. It was something that we kind of just came to, like, you know, fell into and, and was drawn to um, or, you know, that we had mentors that kind of went, you know, you'd be fa fantastic at this. So it's, it's you know, we uh, yeah. kind of relate to the fact that, you know, you didn't quite get there, you know, as 
someone who went, you know what, I'm going to be a teacher and that's what I want to do. It's, it's something that you kind of came to and had a realization that, you know, that was, that was where you wanted to, to work. Yeah. It's funny you say that. I think we're very similar in that regard because I don't know if it's the same in Australia, but particularly now, I don't think teaching or the education field gets the respect that it needs and mm. deserves. And so when I was younger and looking at having a career, I think I was always drawn to training and teaching and lead, you know, leading and learning. In fact, very quickly, um, my grandparents had this uh, walk-up uh, home in Brooklyn, New York, and my cousins and I, we used to play on the steps and we used to play like a Jeopardy quiz-like game on the steps where if you got the question right, you moved up one step. And if you got the question wrong, you moved down one step. And so the winner was the one who got to the top landing. And I, I often found myself in the role of asking questions. Now, why my cousins never challenged me when I told them they were wrong is beyond me. But anyway, so I always, I think I always had that, you know, love of teaching, if you will, yeah. but I fought it. I fought it. I was, like I said, I was going to go into government service. I was going to, you know, do that. And, and I always kind of pushed teaching, you know, to the back, to the back burner, but I, I could not escape that. I think in some ways it was my destiny to become an educator and, and, and it was what I was meant to do. And, but, you know, with that said, I, you know, no, I don't think any of us are ever going to become mega wealthy, rich billionaires as educators. <laughs> and, but yet at the same time, I don't think a lot of people not in the field realize that there are riches. And I know this sounds trite and I don't mean it to be, but I really do get a sense of satisfaction when I see a student's, you know, a student gets something and the light bulb mm. go on, goes on. Or now in my current work, because I don't work with many students directly anymore, it's again, more the leaders and the teachers. I do get a sense of accomplishment when I see that I've helped an educator teach better and yet also teach more efficiently and to mm. see them happier and what they do and less stressed out. That's a, a mark for me in, in helping me know when I'm successful as a coach. And, and I do get a personal sense of uh, satisfaction out of that. And, and I think, I think as educators, we probably, many of us probably share that desire or interest uh, to make a difference. And again, I don't know, I wouldn't necessarily say that that's Although I think us all collectively doing that is altruistic. I mean, I, I do gain something personally and, and selfishly uh, by working with others in this way. I, I just enjoy it. You know, I, I enjoy, like I said, seeing those light bulb moments. Mm. Yeah. So I think I was, I, I think I was blessed or doomed, however you want to look at it, to become a teacher and then a school administrator and now coach. Yeah. <laughs> blessed. I'm going to go with blessed. <laughs> All right. I'm going to go with that as well. <laughs> no, I think it takes a special person to be a teacher. And we have lots of amazing teachers out there. So 
hats off to every one of them because they do an amazing, amazing job. Indeed. Yeah. Now, on the podcast, and it's a shame James can't join us tonight because he loves, he's so fascinated by the difference and similarities between education systems, particularly the Australian and the American, um, looking at those parallels. What have you noticed in the work that you do around different education systems and how they kind of operate? Yeah, well, I think one of the areas, and I think this is the same when we look at U.S. uh, curriculum and Australian curriculum, is what indeed is that curriculum? So I won't profess to be an expert by any means in the Australian system, but I do know here in the States, uh, our states might either be following the common core state standards, which are now transitioning into the next generation standards, or if it's a state in the US such as Texas that doesn't wanna follow the common core state standards, then we do have a fair number of states really going it alone and using their own state-based standards to really direct what students are going to to be able to to learn and do, right? So it is, again, I don't know if Australia is the same way. So there are those set prescriptive standards that all educators should follow. But again, how an educator develops their lesson to meet those standards is is up to the educator. In many, many places, it's it's up to the educator. So how they decide to engage their students in learning that concept or learning that standard. So Alice, what does the curriculum look like in Australia? Is it standards-based like that? Is it federal? What is, how does that compare to what I just described about our curriculum? So pre-2012, we, every state had their, and territory had their own kind of curriculum. And in about 20, I think it was around 2012, they brought in a new um, Australian curriculum that was kind of took different components of the other states and territories to build a, you know, an ultimate um, Australian curriculum. And the lovely state of New South Wales decided that they would, you know, almost better than (laughs) everybody else. They kind of tweaked it. They're almost a Texas, I think, in this scenario. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, they, They tweaked it and then there was like the New South Wales syllabus that was aligned to the Australian curriculum and um, so here in New South Wales where um, we are is we have our own syllabus that was um, linked to the Australian curriculum and we've just we're just embarking on a new one right at this very moment um, about to head into implementation of our kindergarten to year two new syllabus um, which is sitting very separately again altogether. So we did, we did try here in Australia, and I think most other states and territories do follow the Australian curriculum. We're just a little bit of black sheeps here in New South Wales, like to do our own thing. Yeah, it's interesting you said syllabus. So when you said syllabus, do you mean that the curriculum, whether in New South Wales or the Australian curriculum, 
gives teachers like a prescription, like this is how you teach this unit or this is how you teach this concept with these material, these specific materials, or does the teacher have freedom in how they meet a standard? They've got freedom in how they meet the standard. So when I, when I say curriculum and syllabus, I think they've used the two different terms to separate the fact that we've got an Australian curriculum and then a New South Wales it's a New South Wales curriculum, but they've called it a service it. just to differentiate it. Got so it's it. it's almost it's just like what we you would call the standards. So it's you know our outcomes and our content descriptors that say you know here's what the students need to know and understand by the end of this grade, and then teachers take that and they've got license to you know implement that, use the strategies and pedagogical practices to put that in the classroom however they see fit for their context. Yeah, the reason I ask that is because here, uh, what I find when I coach teachers, right? So I will do a lot of coaching around pedagogy and, and the how, like yeah. how teachers are engaging students or how teachers are assessing students. But obviously a lesson really needs to be based first and foremost on what it is exactly you want to teach the students, right? Or yeah. what you need to yeah. teach the students, those standards that we're talking about, right? But I find that, you know, it's both a blessing and a curse that it's not necessarily defined how you teach a standard here, right? Mm. Now, yeah. there are definitely exemplars out there, models out there. There's a lot of, you know, open source curriculum out there. Where different organizations, different states, different places have actually created whole units around certain standards, you know, yeah. in your in your core math and your core English language arts. But again, in most places, unless you know the school system says, "Well, we are going to use these units, which have been developed by us or by an outside entity," uh, that yeah, there's that freedom or yes, there's that freedom to, to bring in the art of teaching in terms of, well, mm. how am I going to you know, teach this and what materials am I going to use to teach this? But at the same time, that is also a struggle for some teachers and, yeah. in, in terms of what they're going to use to teach it, how they're going to teach it. So again, I think we're similar in that regard where Yes, there are those basic uh, mastery standards that we need to meet. But again, how we meet that could be different here in the states from school to school, district to district, state to state. And, uh, and, and so again, so that could sometimes be a struggle as well uh, for educators that might struggle in crafting a lesson, if that makes any kind of sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think um, one of the, the big things that have come out of lots of the um, reviews into teacher shortages here in Australia is the amount of time teachers spend planning and programming lessons and units and, you know, gathering resources and, you know, the big workload that that brings with it. Exactly. Now, Given, yeah, so exactly. So, you know, I wonder sometimes if it would be easier because there is so much work in teaching. Mm. If 
if we just had a centralized curriculum, right? Yeah. But that's never going to happen in the United States. Given, you know, our, our culture and our history with states' rights, every state is still going to want to have the option to engage in a common curriculum, such as the Common Core State Standards mm. or Next Generation Standards. But again, you are always going to have those states like a Texas, and there are others uh, that are going to want to do their own thing, right? So I think it's almost a moot point. We're, we're never going to get to a centralized curriculum here in the United States. But again, I do wonder if we had the same curriculum, if, if it would be easier for teachers to borrow, steal, share ideas, not just within their own district or their own school, mm. but even across systems. Because I really think that that is a way to really move best practice forward when we can share, right? So, yeah. but then again, yeah. I mean, that's why I have a job. I have a job as a coach <laughs> to, to, to help educators navigate this. Yeah. They'd put you out of the job if they didn't have Well, you, you know, it's funny you say that because I think the mark of a good education consultant is one who listens, first and foremost, provides options, exemplars, models for how teachers can work smarter, not necessarily harder, and yet still have greater impact in terms of student results. But then, but then could take a back seat and then that person can fly on their own. I mean, really, that is the mark of a coach, yeah. a good coach, uh, you know, to work oneself out of a job, so to speak. But yeah. Uh, yeah, but I would say that that seems to be, I mean, just bringing it back to our original question in terms of comparison and, and, and contrast, it seems just from our conversation that there might be some similarity there between the Australian system and uh, the United States system. Now, I have a question for you, Alice, in terms of getting at what might be similar or different. Uh, and that's a question around assessment. How mm -hmm. do you assess your students uh, in the Australian system? Um, so in Australia, we have some external assessments. Um, so in the, in the primary settings, so we're talking kindergarten to year six in Australia. Um, you've got what's called um, NAPLAN, which is our national assess part of our national assessment schedule, which um, is testing year three, five, seven, and nine students, looking at reading, writing, numeracy, language convention, so your grammar, punctuation, um, syntax, all that kind of stuff. We've also got um, state-based assessments. So I know in New South Wales, um, our Department of Education does its own, like has built its own um, assessments that they use system-wide to check on um, students in years three to six. And we've then got a lot of, um, you know, individual school-based decisions around assessments are looking at um, diagnostic assessments, use of formative um, assessment tools to make judgments about students. And then looking at perhaps, um, you know, some schools might use a particular assessment platform to then look at that summative 
you know, pre and post testing and exactly. uh, summative assessment. So there's lots of variety, I would say, in terms of the types of assessment that are being used and then looking at, I guess, that how that then translates into how do we address the student needs based on what we're seeing from, from the data that that's giving us. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I'm hearing some similarities and maybe even some differences. Do you, do you have all of your students take the national exams? So, like, Regardless of what territory or, that they're in, do they all take a certain yeah. national? You, you mentioned NAP, was that what you called it? NAPLAN, yeah, is the acronym, yeah. Yeah, so that's a little different. Yeah. So here in the States, every state will have their own assessment or could have their own assessment. Now, a couple of years ago, they did have, and I think it's still the same case, there were different organizations that created the assessments for, uh, for the Common Core State Standards. Now, this is where it gets also a little trickier because there were the park assessments. So certain states that agreed to do Common Core uh, state standards would use the park assessment, whereas other states that agreed to use the Common Core would use the smarter balance assessments. And then, like I mentioned, you have states that have not come on board with Common Core doing their own assessment. So in terms of a normed common assessment, it sounds like in Australia, you're, you're, you're more normed around that. Whereas again, even here in the States, even if you are in a state that has the common core state standards, again, the actual assessment that students take might be a little different based on where that student lives. Now, the only other assessments that I could think of that are sort of national here in the States, but again, I think it's, I think the trend here is we're seeing that it isn't normed in the United States is the college entrance exams. So here in the Northeast of the United States, a lot of the universities will accept as part of their admission requirements, the SAT, the, the um, you know, the SAT. Whereas yeah. others, other states use the, and other schools use the ACT. So even there, there isn't a commonality. And then to your point about state assessments, like I said, different states will have their own state assessments. And then you even have certain cities that will also have their own assessments. So uh, for example, in New York you know, State, uh, where I do a lot of coaching, on the lower levels or the lower grades, you have state exams. And then on high school, students have to pass a certain number of regents exams. So again, unless I'm, I'm hearing it incorrectly, it does seem to be more normed in Australia. Now, I will say a commonality, and I liked hearing what you were saying individual schools are doing around formative assessment in giving pre-assessments, teaching, and then giving post-assessments, and certain schools in Australia using certain learning platforms. Uh, that warmed my heart because in addition to the consulting I'm doing now, I have in the past also served as an NWEA MAP growth facilitator. 
which is just such a learning platform, right? And if school systems give a common formative diagnostic assessment at the beginning of the year, the middle of the year, and the end of the year, you know, they can really benefit from then hopefully, you know, using the data reports that come with those, with those systems. And then it really can help teachers not having to always do a pre-assessment every time they start a unit because they will already have that pre-assessment data and that benchmark data, you know, as the year progresses. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so it was nice hearing that. So pro more progressive school systems here in the States are starting to do more of that. They are realizing that yes, teaching is an art, but it's also a science. And we really need to be basing what we're teaching our students on around what they have yet to master. Because we keep coming back, Alice, to our conversation around curriculum. And curriculum can be vast. And that's mm -hmm. another thing I see teachers struggling with here. It's like, what do I teach? This curriculum is so huge. I got to get through the curriculum. I got to get through <laughs> the curriculum. But if you rush through it, and students, and you laugh because I think it sounds similar. I think, you know, <laughs> yes. <laughs> proud. You know, if you rush through it and your students aren't actually getting it, whatever mm. that is, what's the point of rushing through? So yeah, you don't get used... to that end goal because you're continuously going back over what exactly. they haven't got because you haven't spent and time. Yeah, exactly. So whether or not a district or a school invests in that diagnostic formative assessment platform, or whether or not teachers are doing pre-assessment and post-assessment at every unit, uh, that does seem to be a, a growing trend or similarity just from our conversation between Australia and the United States. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think about that? I definitely, you know, as you were talking, could see the connections that how our systems, even though we've got, you know, slightly different states and territory things happening, could see how it was very similar to some of the things that are going on in the States, but also that nuanced difference around particularly our, our whole um, country assessment that's, you know, where the government expects our students to meet minimum standards um, kind of along the way. And I think, you know, lots of our school funding is tied to that national assessment so in in i know in australia it's quite a contentious topic this this um national assessment like it has it has value but there are also components to it that you know really irk teachers yeah, yeah. i bet maybe that that feeling of loss of freedom perhaps but what exactly mm. is irking them about the assessment um i think it's the pressure i think that that kids feel that you know that parents and society and and sometimes teachers put on our students particularly our young students around this assessment and you know that the whole you know teaching to the, the test and all of that kind of stuff comes out around the time this assessment um kind of is getting close or is yeah. you know due to be administered and it yeah you, you get you see teachers get really riled up about NAPLAN and its value and, um, yeah, it's always an interesting time of year when 
it, yeah. it rolls around. You know, it's, again, that is a similarity, that frustration or that fear, because yeah. whether or not it's a national exam or whether or not, in my case, it's working with teachers in New York City or New York State preparing kids for the regents exams, I think you're right. I think in our case here in the States around March, which is our spring, right? Right yeah. before or February, March, right around the time that our students are starting to take their culminating exams because our school year runs from August, September through about June, uh, because then we hit our summer in June. You know, around that February, March is when that anxiety starts building up. I got to teach to the test. But again, to something we were talking about before, what I like to suggest to folks is you don't necessarily have to teach to the exact test. If you are, you know, pre-assessing what your students know and don't know at the beginning of the year, and then, you know, working on developing and growing student skills in the, in the standards areas where they haven't reached mastery, you shouldn't necessarily have to rush in the spring because you've been thinking about that all along, right? Mm, and. Yeah. You could always be building in types of activities or exercises that model what the assessment is going to look like again throughout the year. So you're not finding yourself in that pressure, pressurized cooker, if you will. Yeah. Because my fear, Alice, and I don't know if this is the same in Australia, there are so many opportunities from assessing our students and having uh, in different ways and having our students work in different ways. And particularly thinking about PBL, project-based learning. I'm thinking about, you know, case studies and scenarios and also giving our students choice in how they demonstrate proficiency, right? So if we're, whether in Australia or in the States, if we're so tied to the test, whatever that test is, I think it really undermines our openness and ability to bring in some of those alternative ways of assessment and alternative ways of learning material, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think if we're so focused on the assessment, it takes away the excitement of learning and it takes away that development of curiosity that kids have about, you know, different things that we're exploring, if you're so, I guess, if you're so focused on, I've got to teach you that test, there's no wiggle room as such in terms of, oh, let's go off and explore this, you know, like you would if you you were doing an inquiry or project-based learning. It just doesn't allow for that. And I think, you know, if we get so focused on, you know, my kids have to do well and, you know, what, you want them to do the best, you know, we all want our students to do the best that they possibly can. But if we're so focused on that, I think it, it actually does more harm than good for our students. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, assessment is important. Formal, you know, paper and pencil test assessment is important. Yeah. But again, it is nice hearing from you that, you know, there are schools in Australia that are also moving towards PBL and, and, project-based learning and Q 
case studies and alternative assessment as well. I think one other area that I was curious to learn about from you and to compare and contrast what we do here in the States is also around teacher preparation. Uh, now, I think I read somewhere, and obviously you would know more about this than me, that all teachers go through the same preparation system in Australia. Is that accurate or, or a little naive on my part? So do you mean like um, a teaching course? Is that what you yeah, mean? Yeah, like what do, what do your teachers have to do to become certified to teach in Australia? Um, so all teachers have to have um, a teacher degree. So if you're doing an undergraduate, it would be like a bachelor's um, of teaching or a bachelor of um, education, uh, whatever the uni calls that particular degree. If you've already got a degree, say in your case, um, you would have to then go and do a master's of teaching. So you have to do an extra couple of years to do the teaching component before you're allowed to teach in a classroom. And that comes with a whole series of um, practical time in classrooms with a mentor teacher um, to kind of practice the craft. And then once you are, you know, you have your degree and you go into a classroom, you then have to go through an accreditation process. So you have to show and demonstrate that you can meet all of these different standards um, that, you know, say, you know, what, that we know kids and how they learn, that we can demonstrate that we can um, use technology effectively in classrooms, a whole raft of, of different standards that you then have to provide evidence to say that you can, you can meet and demonstrate those at a proficient level. Right. So they do that after, like to get accredited, that comes after they're in the classroom. Yeah. And how often do they need to get that accreditation? So they they get though they earn proficient accreditation once. So they do that first off, and then they you go through maintenance cycles. So every five years, you have to um, enter into a maintenance cycle, which you've got to prove that you've done 100 hours of professional development um, across the seven standards um, to show that you are maintaining that proficiency. Now, that's a little different, and I'll explain. So here in the States, similar, teachers need to have a teaching degree, either by going through a, you know, a certified university-based program or like you mentioned, in my case, an alternate route program where their current credentials are evaluated. And then usually it's the state because we are certified by states here in the, in yep. the United States. Uh, then the state will determine what other courses you need to take to then get uh, a provisional license, right? So in, at least this is how it's done in, in New Jersey where I yep. live. So you'll get a provisional license either withstanding or without, depending if you went through a traditional program or you went through alternate route. And then after one year of successful teaching, you will get uh, basically your standard teaching license, which uh, I don't believe has a 
uh, expiration date, once you get that standard license. Now, unlike your accreditation, our teachers, and it also depends on what type of school that they work. So here in the States, we have state schools where teachers can still earn tenure, which in, in many places is three years in a day. So basically your first day of your fourth year of teaching, you could get tenure in a district or in a, in a system. Meaning once you get tenure, it is very difficult to lose your job, right? Okay, yeah. But before that, for those first three years, schools are supposed to be usually evaluating you about, you know, every, you know, every, at least three times if you're not tenured, if you're tenured one time. And we use, it, it could depend on what your, evaluation tool is. Uh, a lot of the schools I work with, Alice, tend to use the Danielson framework. Uh, there's also the Marzano framework. There are a few frameworks here in the States that then will determine whether or not a teacher is rated proficient or not proficient. And before tenure, if someone, you know, someone could be let go from their teaching job for really almost any reason. After tenure, you really have to show evidence uh, it, the evidence switches actually to admin showing evidence that that teacher can't teach rather than that teacher can teach. Yeah. And, you know, there are certain states that will have, uh, you know, a requirement that teachers do take additional courses every five years, additional hours to maintain their yeah. license. Yeah. It's, it's not the same where, every five years, a teacher has to prove that they can still teach. And I wonder, I, again, I don't know if that would ever happen here in the States because there are certain states that are also very strong union states. And then there are states here in the United States that are not strong teacher union states. But I wonder if that would ever happen here, particularly in strong union states. But one concept I find intriguing about that you're doing where teachers every five years have to get recertified. I wonder if that would, would tackle the issue of, and again, I'm not saying that the majority of teachers are this way or even many teachers are this way, but you know, the belief that some folks have where, oh, I'm tenured now, I could kind of skate by. Mm. Because the reality is every year you have you have students in your classroom and, you know, just because you have tenure, you know, you should still be always up in your game. I know it's tough. I know we're tired, but every year you're getting those new students. So how are you maintaining, you know, your knowledge of what the current best practices and pedagogy are? If you're not being asked to recertify every couple of years, it's just an intriguing thought for me, but that's definitely different. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. The, com the comparisons between the two are very, very intriguing. Now, how, how collaborative are your teachers? Um, I, would, I would say in some schools, you would find high 
collaboration. And in other schools, you would find almost like individual silos. Um, and then other schools, you've got a mix of, of the two happening. I think it depends on the, the focus of that particular school and the leader's ability in that school to drive and foster collaborative practice. Mm. Yeah, that's very similar here. I mean, we have some schools that will have teacher representation on school leadership team, uh, committee make uh, committees. We'll also have teachers perhaps engaged in professional learning communities. Uh, we'll also have, you know, teams of teacher coaches. In fact, one of the schools that I'm currently working with in Brooklyn, New York, has an amazing team of teacher coaches and who all really are very good coaches within each of their verticals. What I've been working on with them is really, you know, getting them to be using certain processes and procedures across yeah. all verticals, right? And really helping them to see if they're using the same processes and procedures and how they're coaching in each of their subject areas that they could really be, you know, really analyzing their work as a coaching team horizontally across disciplines, which is really a, a you know, a really great way to move instruction in a mm -hmm. building as opposed to, you know, one-on-one -on -one classrooms. But what I would definitely like to see more of here in the States, and, and I heard somewhere that Australia might have this, but again, if I'm wrong, I more, you know, cross-school collaboration, more use of affinity networks where educators, whether they're teachers, whether they're administrators, have the time to learn from viewing and seeing best practice in other schools with similar demographics. And I had heard somewhere, and again, if I'm wrong, Alice, I apologize, that Australia might even have this competition where, where groups of teacher teams more or less compete to show the greatest impact. Maybe I'm, I'm, maybe I'm, I'm wrong about that, but I would love to see that. I would love to see that here in the States. It sounds almost like, like, I feel like a game show. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I have, I haven't witnessed that myself. Um, I haven't come across that myself, but I do know that um, there are many schools around Australia who do operate under what's called like a community of practice where it's yeah, connected schools within the area or they might connect with similar like schools that are in different places and the sharing of knowledge and practice right. and, and, you know, being able to observe and watch what others do. Um, it's not, I wouldn't say it's commonplace, but I do know it happens in pockets um, depending on, I guess, the people who are leading either those community of schools or the network of, you know, the director that oversees the network of schools. Nice. Yeah. I, I, to your comment about not it not being common, I don't think it's common enough here in the States, mm. but, but I am seeing it more. I am seeing more of those regional support centers supporting multiple districts and, you know, things like LinkedIn, believe it or not, it's informal, but I am starting to see more educators really using social media platforms to share best practice. 
And, uh, but yeah, I think, I think there's room for more of that, right? More yeah. formal affinity networks. Now, you mentioned that I had worked um, in a national charter school. That's one thing we did internally, where when our leaders got together, it, it was less about us at central office telling leaders, oh, this is, this is what you should do. I mean, there was an element of that, but really it was more when our leaders came together of an opportunity to do those problem practice consultancies where, hey, and this is a real example, hey, you know, I, I don't have a very effective tutoring program. What are, what are my colleagues in our other schools across the nation doing? And I was really excited, Alice, because in doing that consultancy affinity model, I did start seeing some of the other school leaders going to this one particular school site within our network that had a very effective tutoring program. So in fact, I was finding that having those consultancies and those affinity network or having that affinity network might've even been more impactful than us at central office saying, oh, you gotta do it this way, right? We had more mm-hmm. impact and more implementation when the leaders themselves were, you know, collaborating on making decisions for where we moved as an instructional community. So uh, again, glad to hear that it's happening in pockets in Australia. It's definitely happening here in pockets. It's just, I guess we have to figure out how to do it more systemically in in both countries. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's, you know, we're on the way, but we definitely have some ways to go in terms of breaking down those barriers and seeing education I guess as a you know it's I'm the teacher and it's my class and the doors are closed and you know I just worry about you know the 25 30 kids that are in front of me to you know branching it out to you know the teacher next door then the teachers within your school and then branching beyond the school and looking at you know how do we not just have that impact on the students within your context but what does that look like for the students down the road and how do we work together as a collective network to improve the outcomes for all of the students within our area and then more broadly? Exactly. Now, I've been asking you a lot of questions. <laughs> you like, have. <laughs> when, you, when you and your co-hosts sit down and, and think about American education, right, um, whether you do it or, or don't at all, what baffles you about our system or what can I try help? Uh, try help answer for for you and, and your colleagues. I think that will me, also help me learn about Australia. Yeah, I think for me in particular, like I know in Australia, our kindergarten to year six classes, our teachers they have one teacher, and we teach all curriculum areas. Whereas I know, well, I think I've heard um, in the states you've got say you've got a maths teacher and then they go to a English language arts teacher and like it's it's not the one teacher that they have is that yes yeah it is and it isn't so here in the states it depends on the school and the school system right so usually pre-k through at least fourth grade usually it's the one teacher teaching all the subject areas yeah. Maybe the kids will go to their special teachers 
And that will be when the teacher has their, their prep period, when their yeah. kids are in art or music, right? But usually K, pre-K through four, it's one teacher. Now it's variable when you're talking about middle school, like fifth through what we call eighth grade, right? Yeah. Depending on the school system, Alice, they could still have one teacher or multiple content area teachers, right? Okay. I would say like, cause when I was a new teacher, when I was starting out, I taught sixth grade. And in our district, I taught all the four core content areas. Uh, the kids only left me to go for their specials. Uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll say that with one caveat. I got all the students for science and the other teacher got all the students for social studies, which I always, by the way, this is an aside, I always found that very ironic given yeah. my background in international <laughs> I was just affairs. about to say, right. it's like, hang on, weren't you right. the social studies teacher? <laughs> well, well, we all know politics, right? <laughs> so uh, I, on a very funny note, I, I, and I digress, but I was teaching a unit, I was supposed to teach a unit on the properties of coal. And I knew I was in the wrong place because I started apparently talking about the progressive era in the United States and workers' rights and um, labor, the concept of labor. So at the very end of the lesson, I still remember this boy was named Jared or his name Jared. He comes to me and at first I'm all happy. Alice, because he goes, man, he goes, Mr. S, that was an awesome lesson. So I'm feeling really pumped up. I'm feeling <laughs> pumped, really yeah. good. Woo. And then he goes, you should so be a social studies teacher, not a science teacher. And then <laughs> I realized, you know, from the mouths of babes, from the mouths of babes. Yep. But, uh, but anyway, so to answer your question, you know, it, usually the changeover to more subject specialization usually happens around sixth grade, fifth or sixth grade. And then high school is all specialized. And, yeah. and maybe you see this here in Australia. There are benefits and drawbacks from that. Whereas I find when I coach elementary teachers, and again, this is a type or a, or a stereotype. So I'm not saying all elementary school teachers I coach are like this. But if I'm coaching them on something, it's usually not about social emotional learning, which is becoming more important and uh, uh, something to be integrated in our teaching, especially post COVID. Uh, you know, I generally find I don't need to help them do that. It's more, okay, what materials can you use to differentiate this learning and, and, and provide students with different opportunities to grapple with this content? The, the whole child reforms, elementary school teachers usually have those pretty down pat. Whereas yeah. high school and middle school, I sometimes find myself reminding teachers that yes, you teach social studies or yes, you teach math, but you also need to form a relationship with your students. And how are you bringing in social emotional learning? Or how are you providing your students with more ownership of the learning where it's less you as the font of all knowledge and having them grapple with the concepts, right? Yeah. So I hope that answered your question. Yes, it did. 
Now, I will say this. Do you have co-teaching in Australia? Is it common to have two or three teachers teaching in a class at the same time? Um, no, not, not the norm. It would be, again, happening in pockets in different schools, depending on the model that the school wants to operate with. I know that Aaron, my co-host, his um, part of his school, so the, the three to six um, component of his school do operate under a co-teaching model, um, which he finds very successful. But I think, and we've talked about it um, a couple of times on the podcast around having the right pairing of teachers to get that combination right. Exactly. Yeah, I would say that's similar. Um, I would say here, some districts do, and some schools have more co-teaching, use, use more of a co-teaching model than others. I have seen it, uh, I've seen it both in urban areas and suburban areas. I mean, a lot of the coaching I do now in New York, a lot of those classrooms are co-teaching classrooms. But to your point, Alice, I think that is a commonality. Is it the right pairing? And mm. are both teachers equally teaching? Yes. Or is it only the use of the one teacher, one teacher teaches and one teacher assists. Because if it is that model, then what often happens is that second teacher is the most highly paid paraprofessional <laughs> that, 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 that I have known, right? And you're really not getting your bang for your buck, or at least your students aren't getting their bang for, for the buck if you're only doing that one teacher you know, teaches one teacher assists. So I as well have talked to different folks on podcast about co-teaching. So it sounds similar that we're similar in, in, in that yeah. regard. Do you have any tips for our listeners if they're thinking of trying co-teaching or they're in a co-teaching situation now around, you know, any tips that you might have? Definitely. So usually teachers are paired here in the States. One is the content area expert and one might be the special educator. Again, I don't know if that's similar in Australia. So the reason that's done is so that way students with individualized education plans or with special needs or ELL learners, that could be another teacher that's often paired with the content teacher, you know, English language learner, learning teachers. So that way, you're not always pulling kids out for special services, but integrating them into the, into the classroom community, right? So if that is not intentionally, if, you, if the pairing is not intentionally planned that way, one tip would be, is there one teacher who is, you know, teaching the core content, is the content expert, and then is the other teacher the differentiation expert? really making those scaffolds, putting those scaffolds in place and or those enrichments in place mm. for different groups of students. Again, we talked about assessment, right? One of the benefits of pre-assessing your students is to learn who's in which of, which of those academic readiness groups, right? So that would be one tip, you know, divide and conquer, right? Yeah. You know, decide yeah. the role that each teacher has. I think that gets to your point about, you know, is it the right pairing? Well, one way to determine that is, do we know our roles as teachers? 
that's 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 one tip. The other big tip is really having a set regime or a plan in place for planning. One struggle I often find teachers have in the schools where I coach is they might have a co-teaching team, but the co-teacher is getting the content lesson plan the night before the class is going to be taught or even maybe while the class is being taught. So it's really hard to differentiate the learning if teachers haven't had time to plan what that differentiation is going to look like. And that's what often happens when you end up with the one teacher teaches and the one assists because they haven't collaborated on that plan. So the more that a school, if they're going to have a co-teaching model, can embed collaborative planning time, the better. I mean, we can go on, but those are two of two of my big tips. Yeah. I'm interested. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Alice. I apologize. (laughs) Um, I was just going to say I'm really interested in the co-planning space. It's something that in my particular context we're looking at exploring as we are in the curriculum reform space here in New South Wales. And that's, that's something that we're looking at. How can we effectively build that into our everyday practice? What tips would you have around co-planning with others so that it's effective and it's not just a have a chat time or a wasting of, of time of, for all that are involved? Right. Yeah. I, again, I think in the co-planning, if teachers a, know what their main function is, like why are they in that co-teaching model in the first place, right? Uh, I think it's a, it's a big plus because then when you sit down, you could think, all right, uh, you're the content teacher and, and you're more the, the teacher that deals with differentiation supports for you know, your special needs populations. Then you could really sit down and go, okay, well, what will this lesson look like for kids below uh, standards readiness? What will this lesson look like for kids at or above standard readiness? What will this lesson look like for your special needs students? What will this lesson look like for your uh, English language learners, right? Because I I, I know that you have a a very large ELL population. We do as well in certain pockets of the United States. So that's how you should like kind of look at that plan. And then just like I would suggest for teachers teaching independently, you know, are you using a basic lesson planning template, like where there's an introduction to the lesson, a mini lecture, student practice time, both individual and, and peer-to-peer, and a summary? So that way, when you are coming together, you, you know the, the template you're using to craft mm-hmm. the lesson, and you know that you're going in there to really personalize the lesson so students get what they need, right? That's that's one way I would co-plan or having a more effective co-planning session. Uh, also too, building into the lesson plan when you are co-planning, or building into the lesson the exact co-teaching model you're going to use. So that way, if like for example, Alice, if you and I were co-teaching, I would know the moves you're going to make in the class and you know the moves that I'm going to make in the class. So in addition to the one teacher teaches and the one assists, which I really think we need to move beyond, 
there are five other, I think five other models and, and I don't remember all of them off the top of my head, but like another one is parallel teaching where you take half the class, I take half the class and we're teaching the same material at the same time, but maybe you have a certain type of learner and I have a certain type of so that's where it could be even differentiated, right? Where mm, maybe yeah. I'm taking the students that need more of those scaffolds and you're taking the students that are more your high flyers, right? Yeah. So that's like parallel teaching. There's stations teaching, which I don't think we do enough of, particularly as we move into the secondary or high school years where you, know, you have different tables and students doing different activities at those different tables with one teacher manning, let's say one station, another teacher manning another station. And then maybe some of those stations could be independently, you know, completed by students. But again, you know, it's all going on at the same time, right? And then another model of co-teaching and this is why it would be important to plan this ahead of time is two teachers teach where you teach a part of the, let's say you teach the introduction. I teach the mini lecture. You then help kids prepare for the practice. I then teach the summary or you have both teachers teaching both, both teaching each part of the lesson. Almost like what you do almost on your podcast with your with your colleagues, right? Yeah. Where you each take turns owning a piece of that, if that makes any kind of sense. Yeah. Yeah, no, it does. It's very it's an interesting concept. And it's you're right, there are different models of of co-teaching, and it's looking at what's, I guess, the most effective and going to yield the most impact for our students in the classroom. Right. I mean, I will say, Alice, just it's interesting that you and New South Wales is looking at co-teaching models. Um, I would say on, in many cases, we're still seeing co-teaching here that one teach, one assist. Uh, but the knowledge is out there. Yeah. The knowledge is out there. The exemplars are out there, which is another plug for affinity networks, because if we're seeing what our colleagues are doing with parallel teaching, rotations, you know, both teachers teaching at the same time, there really shouldn't be a reason why we're still seeing less impactful strategies around co-teaching or less impactful strategies around any type of teacher pedagogy. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I have one last question for you before, yeah, we, sure. before we wrap up. Um, what's one piece of advice you would give to teachers in our current education climate? <laughs> nice big, broad one. <laughs> <laughs> that is a very big, broad one. Um, what piece of advice would I give? I yeah. would say, I, I'd phrase this. I would say, try to, you know, shut out some of the noise. Again, this might be more of an issue here in the States than in Australia. I mean, not to go into this because this could be a whole nother podcast, <laughs> but, you know, here in the States, we have this controversy over, 
you know, critical race theory versus culturally relevant pedagogy. And in my opinion, very quickly, they're two very distinct things. But in our political environment here in the States, they've been complete, conflated as one, which I don't think is accurate. Uh, but anyway, you know, that's one, one bit of noise that's, that's really loud here in the States right now in terms of, of teaching. And teachers are frightened and scared what they can teach and what they can't teach. So my advice would be, I mean, yes, you got to know what your local, what your local cultural norms are in terms of openness for those things. But, you know, do what you know is in the best interest of your kids. I mean, I don't want anyone getting in trouble with their administrations. So like I said, you do need to know what the local zeitgeist is, but do what's in the best interest of your kids. Uh, you know, and one of the key ways to do that is assessing, like we talked about. Pre-assess your kids, you know, learn what differentiations your kids need so that they can be successful. You know, use, you know, a typical lesson agenda format, but ultimately it comes down to, you know, do worry about what you're doing in your classroom with, with, with your kids. What advice would you, I mean, what advice would you give teachers? Um, oh, one piece of advice I would give to teachers. I think what we're seeing a lot of here in Australia and, you know, again, I don't know, but similar in the States is a lot of teachers are just exhausted. Yeah. You know, we've had a big couple of years with, you know, COVID and the pandemic and all of the, you know, the wonderful things that that's brought us. And, you know, I suppose, you know, we're more connected now because of technology, you know, through the pandemic, but we are also just so exhausted. And I think my one advice for teachers is it's okay to take time for you. Yeah. And, and in fact, it's important, you know, you, you can't fill from an empty cup. And so when you're feeling that you are not at your best, then you're not going to be able to give your best to the kids. And so you need to just take time, take stock and do things that fill your cup so that you can be there for your kids and provide the best education for them. I totally agree with that. And very similar here in terms of burnout. And I'd add that, you know, to your point, to the self-care point, also, I know teachers take a lot of things home. They take a lot of work home. It's not a nine to five job, which, or at least it's, it's become not a nine to five job, right? And I think that's contributing to this burnout as well. Yeah. So knowing, and maybe this is another piece of advice, knowing what's a grade, what not to grade, how to have your students peer grading and self-assessing. Mm -hmm. So you're not doing all of that. So the teacher should not be working harder than the students. No. And the book should so, not be going on excursions to your home. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So Nobody uh, benefits from that. Yeah. In fact, you know, I live in a building, you know, mid-rise and, you know, I, some of my neighbors are teachers. And I've had the same conversation, I think, with my ELA high school teacher neighbor for the last like 10 years. Hi, how are you? I'm good. 
yeah, oh yeah, I'm coming back from grading at the coffee shop. Yeah, I think I finally got them all done. I think I've had the same conversation with her on the <laughs> elevator for the last 10 years. And I mean, burnt out, exhausted. So yeah, to your point about self-care, try to figure out how to schedule your teaching to make the kids do what they need to do to hold the kids mm-hmm. accountable for working hard, but critically thinking at the same time Yeah, and allowing and figuring out where you can put those spaces in for self-care and home time with your family, friends, and just exercise, even if you want to do that. <laughs> if you're that way inclined. <laughs> exactly. Uh, oh, yes. Some, some good advice. And I think important advice advice in this particular climate that we find ourselves in it has been an absolute pleasure john talking to you for this episode and i hope that our our listeners got some key takeaways from the episode i know i did it was fascinating chat and i feel like john we could probably talk about education for (laughs) hours (laughs) we can we can because there's a lot to talk about there is there is so much richness in this wonderful profession that we work in but we will not hold our listeners any longer we will end our episode which is episode 36 of season two connecting with the usa it's been fascinating looking at the two different systems and unpacking some of those similarities and looking at some of those nuanced differences. It's just been really, really intriguing and I've thoroughly enjoyed the chat and I hope you have as well. As always, listeners, you can reach out on our socials, Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. Love to hear your episode suggestions or if you've got any questions for John that we can pass on and have him answer for you. Always open to that. Thanks again, John. Thanks, Alice. And thank you to our listeners. Bye for now.